You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I am Lee. I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. And even though I don't have a stopwatch for the next 60 seconds, uh, Lee, talk about Robot. Oh, Robot's so much fun. <laughs> That's all I need to say. It is. It's just a big barrel of fun, isn't it? I mean, look at um, Tom Baker suddenly springing into action. Straight from the word go, the man is funny, amusing, on the ball, totally in control. He's, you know, it's a little tiny bit of his character that you know needs developing, but he's pretty. He's pretty there as he as soon as he wakes up, bang, straight into it. And uh, me and my brother put this on uh, quite a lot when we're drunk, and we laugh a lot um, at that scene where he's just running about. Um, with Harry, <laughs> and it's got Harry in it for goodness sake, and Sarah Jane and the Brigadier and everything else. The robot, yeah, naff, uh, but um, who cares? And obviously, it's a rip off of King Kong. I think we probably all gathered that. Um, and the CSO is abysmal, but it doesn't matter. I don't think any of that matters. I just absolutely love it. It's brilliant. So um, that's my own personal take on Robot. Do you want any more? <laughs> Uh, oh. You've just about got yourself to a minute. I was going to say, one thing is that I absolutely adored the Target book. Oh, yeah, who didn't? Mm. You don't think the robot's very good? Um, the, C- the CSO robot, when it starts growing big, was, was terrible. Yeah, but, but the, the design actual design of the was, robot? Sorry, yeah, my, yeah, the design of the robot is brilliant, absolutely brilliant, yeah. Um, well, you know, the reason why I brought that up is because tonight we're talking about Hinchcliffe and Holmes, Ooh. and that story was... The well, you know, the first three seasons of Tom, and that story was, well, that was the odd one out, wasn't it? And Mark, why is that story the odd one out? Ooh, um, I know, I know. Oh, oh go on then. <laughs> no, go on then. No, Simon, go on, Simon. why was it? It, it was um, a kind of hangover from the Let's years, wasn't it? It was the one story well, the that Barry Letts was still. Oh, of course, yeah, because it was filmed straight after Planet Spiders. Yeah, it was filmed as part of season eleven. And produced by Barry Letts and written by Terence Dix with presumably no script editing content from Robert Holmes. So it was an entirely a production of the previous regime. However, as it is the first story of Tom Baker and the first story of season 12, I suppose it is part of what we're talking about tonight. But before we get to all that, gentlemen... Is there anything more annoying than the sort of fan who always seems to have inside information before everyone else? For example, JR? Peter Cap- For example, Peter Capaldi has just leaked the news that J.R. Southall will regenerate into Lee Rawlings at the end of the current series of the Blue Box podcast. Interesting that they should have chosen to go for a much younger showrunner. Oh. Yours in flight, Doc Whom. <laughs> I can't think of anything more scary than taking over this cast. <laughs> oh, God, no, no, you, you keep it, <clears throat> JR. I'm not going nowhere. Okay, here's an email from Gary Akers. 
The choice of Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor is brilliant. I cheered at the prospect of an older Doctor and I can't wait to hear what you all think of the choice. Not only is he from one of my favourite movies, Local Hero, but at long last there will mercifully be an end to all of the Doctor companion sexual tension. I want to ask, and I'm not at all trying to be conspiratorial here, but from Matt Smith's taped segment during the next Doctor special, and from several of his Comic-Con interviews I watched on YouTube, I get the strong impression that he doesn't really want to leave the role. Not simply sadness at leaving, but really not being ready to go. Was his departure his own choice, or was he urged to leave by Moffat or the BBC? I'm only asking because I'm sure you know the score on this, J.R. He says, well, to be honest, I can't say I honestly do know the score on this. But having said that, I think it's just... I think it's just a case of... I'm sure I said this last week, maybe. I'm sure it's just a case of... You know, you hand in your resignation when you think the time is right and you've still got, <clears throat> you know, a certain period at work before you go and as that period's getting towards the end, you suddenly realise how monumental the choice you've made is. It'd be interesting to see um, an expert body linguist, body language expert rather, um, looking at the way he is, whether or not it's mm. a bit... F- bit false maybe maybe he's pretending to be all a bit upset or whether it's very honest and truthful and he like you say probably wasn't ready to actually leave but was maybe told this is the time but you know you've got to be sensible about it if he's got to go he's got to go and it's got to move on and it's got to survive um tom baker had a, a very similar kind of interview i think in 82 81 or whatever it was when he just left or oh, he was about to leave that's right on Blue Peter, I think you can just tell he just doesn't want to talk about it. He just wants to either he just wants to get out of it and get on with his life. And he's had enough of the idea of being kicked out. So you know he looks sad about it, um, but at the same time inside he's probably thinking, no, I just want to get on with my life and move on forward. But I think from Tom's angle, it's different to to Matt. But it'd be interesting to see if somebody can pick up whether everything he says and does in his interviews are completely and utterly honest and not a little bit of acting. Well, I don't think he gives I don't think he gives terribly good interview anyway. He's never mm. very good at making eye contact during interviews and he always always seems to shift around in his seat a mm. lot. I think he's a bit of a nervous interviewee. Okay. And I think that interview just kinda made it look even worse because <laughs> that programme was about you know, it was a programme about his replacement. Uh, one more email. I've got loads more emails, but let's just do one more before we move on. Uh, this is from Mark Whiteley. Thanks for reading out my email. Great to have it read out when all of you were there, too. When you asked if the Twin Dilemma was a Woolworths exclusive, you literally gave me a childhood flashback. I remember getting it from Woolworths because my normal Doctor Who retailer didn't have it. And he says, Harry was super chuffed with your message. Thanks, guys. Uh, well done on Capaldi, you were right. I don't watch much telly, so I'd never heard of him, but as soon as he walked out, I knew it was the right choice. He looks like the Doctor. Good move, Moffat, you earned yourself a bit of my respect. And some of the things I've read about him since, like trying to take over the fan club and harassing the production office, wow, <laughs> I'm very excited for the future. I've shown a few of, I've shown a few people that my email was read out and cemented my position as chief geek among my friends and family. Thanks again, Mark. Uh right. Lee. Simon. Yes. Peter Capaldi, what do you think? I'll pass you over to Simon first, I think. I am 
cautiously optimistic. No, that that sounds really. I know he's going to be okay. I'm not. I'm you not, know he's going to be okay. Well, no, he's <laughs> going to be. I know he's going to be great. I find it very difficult to imagine in my head what sort of a doctor he's going to be in this era of Doctor Who. If he was a classic doctor, I'd say yeah, absolutely perfect because he is like a classic doctor. Um, but as to how the writing and everything is going to work around him, I'm I'm not quite sure. And it's quite nice in a way because I, I'm not assuming anything. I'm going to, just going to watch it and enjoy the fact. And I hope to God that he is completely different from the other Doctors in a lot of ways. I hope he's still got the heart. Um, there's a lot of things I hope he's still got in order to keep the audience. That sounds that sounds like a really callous thing to say. Um, I think the majority of fans don't really give a toss as long as they enjoy it. But I I think we've all got this kind of deep-rooted thing now where we want the programme to survive. So we, you kind of hope that there's still going to be a lot of heart to the programme. But there's also a part of me which likes the idea of him being a little bit grotchety and a little bit short and sharp. Um but maybe that comes from the previous parts that he's played. Who knows? I, I think it's a completely blank slate. <laughs> I think people who have seen him in the thick of it are expecting him to be like he was in the thick of it. Yeah. Or Torchwood. And, of course, Peter Capaldi is not usually like that. In those two, he was playing against type. We've been having a bit of a capaldi on in our house. We've been watching stuff like The Crow Road, which mm-hmm. goes back a few years. And yeah. um, Prime Suspect, which is a slightly different performance mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. Is that, so, what you call um, it? is that what you call it? A Capaldiathon? <laughs> That's what I'm calling it. That's brilliantly lazy. Hashtag Capaldiathon. <laughs> oh dear. Capaldi, well. And so what? You can ask me, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, I did this thing where I recorded myself um, live whilst watching the programme. I, I normally wouldn't do anything that geeky, I, I, you know, but I thought, well, do you know what, this would, be, this would be interesting to see my honest reaction and my daughter's reaction, actually. So we sat down and we watched the programme, recorded bits of it, um, and Peter Capaldi walked out and I just I shouted like, uh, you know, some football fan and watching uh, their home team score a goal uh, like a complete idiot. And straight away, my daughter said after, she said, oh, you've got to put that up somewhere. You've got to give it to your friends to listen to. Now you've recorded it. So I did a quick edit, threw it straight up to Facebook or whatever, onto Audioboo. Um, and people found it amusing. I don't know if you heard it. Um, and then it got featured on Audioboo, which meant <laughs> that thousands of people could hear it. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm feeling a bit stupid now. But <laughs> I, every time I listen back to it, I kind of think, I don't care. That was my honest reaction. I was so happy that Peter got the yes. job. Yes. Tell us about Peter Capaldi, Lee. Yeah. Stop telling us about yourself. JR, you like stories about things that aren't necessarily directly involved with Doctor Who. You like the things that are around Doctor Who, and that's <coughs> what I'm giving you. But uh, Peter Capaldi, oh, for goodness sake, look at the guy. I mean, he's 55. That's what people are worrying about. Can he run down corridors? Who cares? Um, the, the guy's going to hold the screen. He can hold the screen on his own. He could be on a stage, and he could hold 3,000 people on his on the stage on his own if he wanted to. Um, he's got power. He's got a lot of power. He was very kind of shy in his interview. It was an interesting thing. It was a little bit kind of, it almost looked awkward, you know. I'm a, I'm a geek really kind of thing. He's suddenly coming out. But no, he's going to be great. He can do comedy. He can turn on a sixpence and be really dark if he wants to and really powerful. Uh, he's going to be great. Everything about him is going to be great. If anything goes wrong, I will blame the writers. <laughs> can I also what what a thing for him to get to that stage in his life 
Mm. I mean, we're in our 40s, well, at least three of us are, and, you know, we're talking 10 years on from now, certainly... Hang on, are you saying I'm in my 50s, you cheeky bugger? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark's not 40 yet. Are you you 40 40 in March, yeah. Yeah, I'll get... Um, (laughs) Well, 10 years on from now, can you imagine getting your dream job? This that late in your life, mm. it must be a, um, an amazing and really surreal thing for him to get his dream job at that stage in your life, and and that just means there's hope for all of us, doesn't it? You know, we might actually get a decent job one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, uh, uh, yeah, I think he's the exception. <laughs> but you never know. Let's hope. Um, changing the subject entirely. Richard Hogarth emailed in and said, Hey guys, really enjoyed the What If podcast. Thought it was good seeing how fancy the show and what we would all love to change about it. I just want to say that I disagree with JR. Hang on a second. Um, You're not alone. Sorry, can you, you, read, know that could you read that bit that again? Just... It, I just want to say that I disagree with JR, although I get your point about William Hartnell's regeneration. From watching the clips in his episodes, I believe it's about his how his travels have taken their toll on him, as he was around three or four hundred years old at this point, and no word of a previous regeneration. Mm. I feel it was just his time, and he knew it. That's why he didn't fight it. And the TARDIS knew this, so that's why it activates. Also, I feel it's not soft. I feel it was the production team saying goodbye to their lead with dignity and respect. Unlike the way they treated Patrick Troughton's regeneration with him kicking and screaming. I would love to see you guys do a podcast on your best stroke, worst ever episode stroke stories of Doctor Who. Eagerly await your next instalment. That's not a bad idea, Thank actually. you very much. Our favourite and least favourite stories. Yeah. We could do yeah, it, we, we? Could, we could perhaps do that, yeah. yeah. We've got a ha- I think we got maybe a we will. Yeah, got a hey, it's, it's the anniversary year, we should do it. Right, you on. Okay. Now, let's get down to the business at hand, because we've been recording for far too long not to have <laughs> barely mentioned it yet. Um, look, by way of introduction, I will bring up this point that probably sounds a bit weird, but bear with me for a minute. Every time there's a period of Doctor Who in which the producers of the show make it a show that's about something, it seems to be followed by a period of the show in which it's not really about anything at all, and which is either more enjoyable or more successful, and often both than the period that went before. The William Hartnell years were very very much on the BBC's educational remit with the sort of morality tales and the historicals. And then you get Patrick Troughton, and it's just fun. And it doesn't pretend to be anything other than fun. And it's a load of stories that really aren't about anything at all, apart from, you know, the Yeti on the loo in Tootin Beck. Yet the Russell T. Davis era, which was massively fun and massively successful, and during which... You know, Russell T. Davis did a bit of a Barry Letts and used the program to kind of look at things, look at, you know, the world around us a bit and try and reflect something back on that. And now you're having the Stephen Moffat era, which I think is even more fun, but reflects far less of the world around it. And where I'm coming to is this. Of course, Barry Letts was absolutely the master of using Doctor Who as a mirror to reflect back on his political and ecological concerns about the world. And then Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes come along and they do three years of Doctor Who 
in which the program is absolute meaningless bollocks and <laughs> it is the most fondly regarded era of Doctor Who there has probably ever been. Agreed. Right, so that's the end of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but why? What makes it so good? What makes it... Because you would think that people would remember better eras of the programme in which it did reflect the world around them because it would mean something more to those people watching. Well, maybe it does. So what is it? Yeah, but what are you saying? Barry Letts is more fondly remembered than Hinchcliffe? Possibly. Some people remember his era probably more fondly than Hinchcliffe. Uh, I mean, people, I'm not people saying yes. I mean, so Barry Letts and Hinchcliffe are very different. So are the viewers and the, you know, the fans. So they've probably got their their favourites too, but I do get your Yes, meaning. I'm not saying that there aren't eras that other people don't have as favourite. I'm saying that more people have this era as their favourite than any other. Mm. It would seem. It would. Or do you not agree? Um, well, no, I partially agree, but I think also it was the... There's something about the, the seven, late 70s and Doctor Who getting very, very popular... Um, there was there was more to it than that. I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe you can tell us why was it suddenly popular. Do you think it is what you're telling us? I think just a lot of popularity is down to that teaming up of of the Doctor, Liz, and Harry, or Sarah Jane and Harry, should I say? It's the dream team. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I think that goes a long way to make up for any shortcomings story wise. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, what I'm asking here is, are, are there shortcomings story-wise? I'm saying that the stories aren't about anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad stories. They're just not stories that, in particular, choose to address something. I suppose if you look at Ark in Space, that addresses sort of uh, stuff about you know, what we're doing to the planet. We've screwed it up, so we have to leave... Um, no, not really. That's just an excuse to have a load of people on a spaceship. <laughs> That's not what the story's about. Mm. Not like in The Green Death. In The Green Death, that story is about what we're doing to the planet. In The Ark in Space, it's a story about a bunch of people on a spaceship. You're, you are right, actually, JR. That it, even though they're, they've got that as the backdrop, it's not the main thrust. And, uh, you know, it's, it's them kind of almost saying, let's do a little bit of a Barry Letts. Um, until we really let ourselves go <laughs> and have a bit of fun. What about the eighties? Was that a similar type of thing? <clears throat> can you compare? I don't think you can. I don't think you can really look at the eighties and compare it with any other era of Doctor Who because there just weren't any rules. Mm, okay. But this, we're not talking about the different eras. I've just used that as a way of introducing this particular era and asking. You know, my question is, what is so good about this era of the programme that almost everybody seems to love it? And that was just my introduction. I was saying in the introduction, this is what it's not. So what is it that it is? It's Tom, isn't it? Isn't it Tom as well? I mean, not only is it the kind of the writing is very it's very good. It's very good writing. It's a very strong adventure, boy's own adventure, a bit of horror, tiny bit of gothic thrown in there. Um, but it's Tom Baker pulling it off, isn't it? He's such a strong character that everybody just loves and adores. And he's funny and powerful and, and tall and strides in and owns a, a complete play. And also, you get, you know, Sarah Jane, perfect foil for him. Um, and yeah, Simon's right there. It's a dream team. Maybe that is the main thing that you know that's what people really remember not necessarily the stories 
It's also, well, I, um, I'd say it's also an incredibly commercial product as well, visually and everything. Everything is in the right place. You've got um, a very pretty and intelligent assistant. You've got Tom Baker, who is visually striking. You've got the scarf. You've got the big hair. You've got the way he acts. Then you've got Harry. Then you've got the monsters in that first season as well. You've got the Daleks and Cybermen. Um, it's, it's all about the whole package. And you've also got flights of fantasy it it, it is uh contrasting to the to the let series because it's not tied to the earth in the same way so all of a sudden you've got this big flight of fancy where people can just literally lose themselves for that period of time there's also a warmth to tom baker as well which i don't think was there with pertwee um you know, you know the whole thing the christopher eccleston thing is come with me come on the adventures and it's like that with tom baker because you you've, there's this oddness but this this warmth about him. Um, yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, he, he could snap at people like Pertwee did, but I think there was that extra, I don't know, likability to him that perhaps the, didn't come across with Pertwee so much. The, the humour, yeah, Simon's saying humour. Yeah. And, the, and the, you know, he's got a giant smile, you know, so it can disarm you in a, in a second. Um, but, you know, there are moments where, he, like in Pyramids of Mars, where Sarah Jane says, you're just not, and he says, what? you know, human, no, I'm alien sort of thing, when somebody's died in front of him and he's just pretty much ignoring them. Um, you know, so the, he does have that alien quality too, but I do get what Simon means about the warmth, especially with his companions. I don't think it's all about those guys, though. But yes, obviously there's a large part of it. But it's not like Doctor Who hadn't had dream teams before, as it were. Troughton and Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury, for example to me is just as strong a team as Tom and Sarah and Harry. Which echoes what you said earlier about the mm. Patrick Troughton being a very popular Except, era. Except, yeah, no, but that's only a popular era among fans, actually. At the time, when that was on, you know, Doctor Who was shedding viewers like nobody's business and was down to, like, you know, a quarter of the level of viewers it had had during Hartnell. So that's the sort of um, Trout and Hines and Padbury is only kind of a dream team. But there you're talking personalities. I'm talking mm. about, um, oh God, how can I describe it? When you've got all those elements in place at the right time, and I can say well, there is yeah, a commercial but... aspect to the Tom Baker era. You know, when you've got toys being, I, I think about those toys, about the Tom Baker toy in the TARDIS and K9. And lead, and then there was a giant robot as well, wasn't there? In that same yeah. series, um, incredibly commercial, and and it's that whole. Like I said, the only way you can describe it is there's the whole package. Every angle of it worked. The 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 music, the titles, the credits, the title theme, um, the actual visual, the vortex, and everything. I know it had kind of come in a bit with Pertwee and that, but it was all there, and just everything worked. And I appreciate what you're saying about the stories, uh, JR. Um, not necessarily... Oh, I don't know. Are they? I don't know. I'm, I'm veering off now. But I just feel like maybe it was to do with my age. I don't know. But I get a, a very strong feeling that it was kind of the ideal Doctor Who setup. When people think of Doctor Who, who don't necessarily watch Doctor Who, that is what, how they think of it. That it was uh, the Doctor going off in space, seeing lots of strange aliens, lots of odd things happening, lots of um, quarries, um, and it not necessarily being rooted in on planet Earth in any, in any shape or form. 
very um, easy stories to understand as well. Uh, nothing too complex and uh, overblown. But also taking the Barry Letts model uh, of, of storytelling, I think, near the end of his tenure, like you said, I think, in a few podcasts back, Joe, that Barry Letts kind of made Doctor Who in in the period that he was, you know, uh, when he was producing the show, as we kind of remember it, as we see it. Um, uh, and, yeah, so, yeah, maybe it's just all the stars are in the right place. But I don't necessarily think it was just one element. There was a whole lot of elements, and the, the writing was good, actually, in a lot of places. And, of course, Philip liked to scare kids, which always helps. It makes, uh, makes the children remember it and want to go back and watch more the next week and... Yeah, he didn't patronise anybody, which was great. Whereas you, you, I feel I was feeling quite patronised, <laughs> you know, as a viewer, watching, say, Patrick Chowton, William Harnell, and some of John Pertwee's as well. But in Tom Baker's era, for some reason, suddenly you're not being patronised. Um, I think I remember seeing um, Philip Hinchcliffe interviewed and him saying that he'd realised that there was this big potential audience in the sort of student uh, part of the the audience makeup, and he was trying to aim it more towards them. So I don't know if that made any difference to the the overall way the show was going as well. Maybe. Well, he said he'd already. <clears throat> he said that with Doctor Who, you were already guaranteed the children. He said if you could add the teenagers to the children, you'd double your audience. Well, not literally double your audience, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. If you added the teenagers to the children, then you'd increase your audience. And, you know, bingo. And that's what he tried to do, and that's what he did do. Which people mistake him for meaning he's aiming Doctor Who at teenagers. No, what he's doing is he's aiming the series wider so that it picks up children and teenagers. Not quite the same as when a certain somebody in the mid-1980s aimed it almost purely at teenagers (laughs) and lost everybody else. Mm. Look... My overriding memory of having lived through the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era is of how naughty it was. What Robert Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe did, and this to me is the primary thing that was going on during those first three years, what they did was they made X-rated movies for children without watering them down. So that at half past six on a Saturday night, you were watching something that you wouldn't legally be allowed to go to the cinema and see for another 10 years. I was about to say, there's this thing, I, I almost remember daring myself to watch it. Yeah. There, there, yeah, exactly. It was, there's a, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a naughtiness to it. Do, Doctor Who have always... mum and dad noticed that I'm watching this? Is that thing going on, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, Doctor Who had always had the scare factor, right? But it had never been so fundamental and so obvious, so in your face as it was during those three years. People say it's the Hammer Horrors, right? They kind of simplify it that way. It's not Hammer Horror. It's just any and all X-rated movies that they think (laughs) they could get away with putting up on the screen. And it's no wonder Mary Whitehouse was having kittens during this period because week in and week out she was seeing these X-rated movies being shown at half past six on a Saturday night for kill for kids to watch. Yeah, I mean they took and of course the kids loved, loved that, it, didn't they? they? Yeah. So um, you know they were they were nicking from the B movies, from Amicus, um, everything really, um, Forbidden Planet and stuff like that. It was it wasn't just like your gothic kind of horror, but it was you know, like X-rated movies or 
uh, double A's. What were double A's? You remember what double A's were? Weren't they 16 or something like that? It was all uh, like 14. Kind of four, uh, 40. <laughs> 14. Oh, right. I was going to say. Um, 40. <laughs> 14. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. You know, you, you're absolutely right. They were hitting it on the nail there. But also, you were allowed to watch it. Um, at, at the same time, you were dead scared of it and you were hiding literally behind the sofa. Like Simon said, you were feeling, you know, oh, I'm allowed to watch this, but it's really a bit scary for me. I do remember watching The Robots of Death through a crack in the door um, for the whole the whole of the episode, actually, all of them. And I was just too scared. I actually got a chair in the end and sat and looked at it through the crack in the door. Like that would actually make a difference. But uh, as a kid, you think uh, it does. I think that's the thing that, <clears throat> like I say, for me, that was the primary thing, how naughty it all felt to be sitting here watching something that I almost knew I shouldn't be. Even though, by the same token, this weird thing is going along, I shouldn't be watching this, and yet it's being made for me, for people my age. And that was the primary thing that draws you in. And I think that's what makes that era of Doctor Who perhaps the most evocative for people who are the right age to remember it but of course that's only your way in if it doesn't have the substance underneath as well and the substance is where you know your tom baker and sarah jane dream team comes in i think when it comes to tom baker and elizabeth sladen it wasn't that they were that good it was that and I'm not saying they weren't good, obviously, because they were good. But what I'm saying is I think they benefited from being in the programme at that time. I think if you'd have had Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen in 1984, for instance, they wouldn't have been able to make anything with that series. It was a conflation of different elements, for sure. But it's not so much that all the elements are serving one another. It's kind of a topple-down effect from the top, maybe. Do you know what I'm saying? Because at the top, you've got this scare factor that Hinchcliffe and Holmes have, you know, gone for the jugular on. Then your next thing down, you know, I'm talking here, the sort of the layers you peel back as you're watching when you're a kid or whatever age you are, when you're watching Doctor Who, this particular brand of Doctor Who, the first thing you notice is how scary it is. And then the second thing you notice is the actors in the lead parts and the performances they're giving. And then you peel that layer away, and then you notice the dialogue, and you peel that layer away, and then you notice the storytelling. And the scare factor is absolutely top-notch you know you can't go beyond that scare factor you can't beat it the performances from tom and elizabeth sladen excellent exemplary then you get down to the dialogue not always so brilliant the robert holmes stuff that he wrote fantastic but then you look at something like planet of evil or the android invasion and the dialogue's a little bit iffy is a little bit bland sci-fi dialogue and then you peel that layer away and you get to the stories and, you know, some of them are just a little bit lacking, if you're going to be completely <laughs> honest. Look at the last episode of Pyramids and Mars. It's an absolute nonsense. It is, really, isn't it? It's always, yeah. It and was the always stories... the journey for me. Mm. I always love the journey yeah. to the end. I never really like the end of most old truths, to be honest, because it's, it's just a big cliche, isn't it? And that's kind of the thing. The scares and the actors and the funny dialogue, the witty dialogue, kind of... They're the things that you mm. carry you through. To be honest, 
some of those stories, a lot of them are just kind of elements taken from here, there and everywhere and all thrown together into a part. Mm. And some of them don't really make a lot of sense at all. I mean, Pyramids and Mars is one of the best Doctor Whos ever. But that's in spite of the story, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's true. And the thing about the scares as well, very, very interesting to get that right level as well because obviously you know you had the Mary Whitehouse troop bubbling behind trying to trying to trip Doctor Who up and they did in the end but um, and that was due to something that kids could copy anyway as opposed to it being like a fantastic <laughs> well it's that being graphic isn't it yeah yeah um, but uh, you know I was thinking about the modern series of Doctor Who apart from say the odd few things like Rose me and Simon were talking about Rose I'll tell you about that in a minute um, that you don't there aren't that many moments where you actually truly are terrified as a kid as far as I can see, my kids have grown up with it, and I've seen Finn get scared of a few things, and it was pitched just about right. But most of the time, the scares aren't really there. They're not. It's, a, it's kind well, of Russell T. Davis did say he kind of forgot to put the scares <laughs> in in that first series, but then having seen how effective Stephen Moffat's story was, The Empty Child, that's when the scares started to come back into it. Yeah, that that was a perfectly pitched scare. Fest. I mean, that would have worked brilliantly in you know Tom Baker's era. That's that's how it should be. It was just an impossible right. planet, of course. And then mm. you know, uh, mm. Russell T. Davis was pitching it more at the adventure level. Yeah. And if you look at Doctor Who over the course of the years, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era has been the only era, and it's a really small, isolated pocket in a twenty-six years history when it's actually really gone for the scares. Uh, you know, almost at the expense of everything else. Mm. And the scares, they're, um, they, they're uh, ghost train scares, aren't they? They're fun. They're not sayward scares. They're fun, yeah, for a kid, yeah, because because they the one thing that they don't do, and the two instances that Mary Whitehouse really complained and probably had a point were the two instances where they overstepped the mark, one of which is the um, effect when Kondo gets shot in Brain of Morbius when you can actually see the bullet you know, pitting a hole in his chest mm. and blood come flying out that probably shouldn't have been in and the other thing of course is the drowning incident but apart from those two incidents they don't go for the graphic the scare is it's even almost a pre-Hammer kind of a scare in the Hammer you always had the blood by the end of the scene you know you had the scene with the vampire chasing the girl around and it was the scare that you knew you'd get to the blood at the end of the scene or the sequence that kind of kept you watching and in Doctor Who that was the one thing you didn't get you didn't get the blood but you got something else instead you got an alien monster in a funny mask do you know it's interesting uh, Lee was saying about the um, watching Rose I'll, I'll come to that in just a moment but <clears throat> I absolutely loathed Mary Whitehouse I honestly thought what on earth are you doing I can appreciate that they thought it was, she was the best thing since sliced bread because if she reacted you know you got a load more viewers the next episode but I just used to think oh, have you really got nothing better to do than and yet actually <laughs> she was probably in many ways right well I was going to say particularly with the deadly assassin thing I remember making the point that they had that right at the end of an episode. So, and, and, and as you quite rightly said, the children were left with the image of the Doctor drowning for a whole week until the next next episode, which I think that is probably the case where the judgment was off. 
I don't really have an issue with it if it happened mm. in the middle of an episode. So it was resolved very quickly. And what I was going to say was I watched Rose. Or if it had been left on a precipice with him maybe being about to be drowned. Yes. Not actually being drowned. No, no. Which is how the cliffhangers worked in the 80s. Always something was just about to happen. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Um, but how I was going to relate that to Rose is I watched Rose with my four-year-old daughter at the weekend. She's watched a bit of it before. We didn't make it all the way through. And this time... Um, you know, it gets quite intense towards the end and um, obviously people getting shot and what have you and my partner said, I think we should turn this off. I think, And I said, no, no, let her finish it out. And it was all about the resolution. It was all about resolving the fact that they were all going to get turned off and it was all going to be okay and the doctor was going to make everything all right. And the worst thing you can do yeah. if a child is, you know, going to have a bit of trouble with a sequence in Doctor Who is not let it play out and you see the Doctor winning. Yeah, yeah, this is it. It's like yeah, sticking someone at the top of a roller coaster, isn't it? It's just getting them so far and then <laughs> leaving them up there to look down at the at the yeah at the height. It's like get them safely back down and let them know everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if if Andrew was in the room now, she'd say, "Well, you shouldn't have let her watch it in the first place." But <laughs> the fact is, she really wanted to. She'd already watched I think the three kids Doctors. Kids love and to be scared, don't they? They do, mm. they do. She loved the fact that she was watching something that dad, it was daddy's to watch, you know. And, and if you think um, about it, I mean, something, if you compare like horror to humour, we may not all agree on what we find funny, but I think most people have much more in common when it comes to what scares them. Yeah, and the other thing as well, of course, is everybody likes to laugh, just as the way everybody likes that moment when the hairs stand up on the back of the neck. Mm. Mm. You know, everybody enjoys that. I don't think there's many people who, like you say with the ghost trait, I don't think there's many people who wouldn't enjoy, perhaps not all the time as a favourite thing, but from time to time, a horror film that really makes them feel something. Mm. So that when they come out of the other side of it, they can really feel they've been on some kind of a ride. I mean, I've never liked, uh, for, I've never liked the horror that disturbs me. Not really. Um, if I come through at the end of a, a horror film and I'm still thinking about it afterwards, I'm I'm fairly unsettled with that. And I've I've never very rarely had that with Doctor Who, because um, there's a psychological horror, isn't there? And I don't think Doctor Who has ever ever really been that. It's oh, it did it during uh, it did it during this period, the Ark in Space, where Noah's getting taken over. I sp- yeah, you know, that's one that of the transformation th- thing. Yeah, no, you're mm. you are right. You are right. That is one of the that did things stay with me. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was always absolutely terrified of ants and bugs, because you know what, you know, and I'm talking the age of like three or four here. I would see, say, for instance, them hatching out of the garden and the little ones come running out, whatever, the smaller ants. And I think, what if they lay their eggs on my skin and then ants would hatch inside my arm oh. and go running up and down my bloodstream? I don't believe it. That's the same <laughs> horrific dream yeah, that I was having over and over again. And you know what I'm saying? Robert Holmes put that on screen yeah. in the Ark in Space, didn't he? He did. Because if... I mean, we look at it now and it's green bubble wrap and we laugh. Is but it? at that age, you're looking at that and you're seeing a man who's had, you know, bug eggs hatch inside his arm. Spoiler. It's absolutely petrifying. Spoiler. Um, 
I don't think we can phase... really worry too much about spoiling <laughs> 35-year-old Doctor Who. Uh, phase 4 was the name of the film that I accidentally saw as a kid. Um, I think it was called Phase 4, and it was about ants. Um, and you know, Yeah, they... it came out around about the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's right, and it was coming out of people's hands. And the actual, f- I think the film poster had a hand with an ant coming out of it. And that was like, that terrified me for absolutely ages. I think I've only just got Richard out of it. Richard Chamberlain one? I think it w- was. that the one in the house? Oh, I can't remember now. Mm. Yeah, yeah I it might so. have been. Yeah, one of those anyway. But uh, yeah, I was I was with you on that one. It's a good job I didn't see Ark in Space as a kid either. But you know, the going back to the subject of, you know, the, as I was talking about pe- peeling off the layers of what it is about this era of Doctor Who that kind of keep it in your memory, that make it live in your memory, which is, you know, why it's the perhaps the best remembered era of Doctor Who. And, like I said, I think it's the scare factor that's the number one priority there. And, of course, the other thing about that is the production design, the monster costumes, that's part and parcel of that first layer of the the chill factor. You're looking at the Zygons, and even the dumb robots, they're really opulent, or the, 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 the dumbs and the vox, the robots of death. There's a kind of opulence and a beauty about them but by the same token that also because they're so beautiful and yet so dead there's no life in those faces that's what makes them scary this era of doctor who is the one era where they got more decisions right about how the show looked than any other era of the show i think even if you look at john pertwee there's some great monster designs in john pertwee but by the same token there's also some pretty awful ones but i don't think there's I, I can't think of a single bad decision during this entire three years no. in terms of design. Mm. I mean, the robots are death, like you say. Um, that was the one that got me behind the door. And it was the sing-song voice. It was the, hello, I'm going to be your friend. And then I'm going to rip off and your And the fact that the mask is face. absolutely it's... frozen still while mm. it, this sing-song voice is coming out. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it was coming at you with a, an injection or whatever. It's All of those things are just... It was so perfectly balanced as well, and they were beautiful design, weren't they? Oh yeah, and I think even the lesser monsters during this period, like the Kral, the Kral's in the Android Invasion, I still think that's an absolutely amazing design. Bring the Kral's back. Hmm. Well, I keep saying I want character options to do Kral's, but you know, um, some of the ideas as well. Robert Holmes had a really fertile mind. And when you look at, say, the things he was doing in Terror of the Autons, they're all, I mean, some of those ideas in Terror of the Autons, the daffodils that can kill, right? They're just genius, mad ideas, right? But they all come out of the premise, which is that the nesting consciousness controls plastic. So it might be... You know, seemingly a genius idea, but it doesn't take a genius to work it out that if you start off with the idea of living plastic, you eventually get to plastic that kills, right? But then you go to something like the Talons of Wang Chiang, and when I was a kid, what was the scariest thing in the Talons of Wang Chiang? It was the, you know, the ventriloquist mannequin that gets up and walks mm. and kills of his own accord. <gasps> Absolutely terrifying. I've just picked up my Mr. Sin figure from the shelf. <laughs> oh, bless him. Yeah, no, that that stayed with me. I don't remember watching the whole of that 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 story when it was on because it, it was too too much. <clears throat> remember the rats though? Didn't ignore the rat. I watched the rat. 
Um, but no, they, they yeah, they, there's so many iconic things. I think it was just a, it was a, you think about that and, and Star Wars at the time, the designs are timeless, aren't they? I think we've lost, have we lost Mark? I'm still here, I'm still here. Oh, <laughs> I thought you'd disappeared on us, Mark. No, I think um, Talons is um, a real standout story if you look back over the classic series. Um, it's just really beautifully put together. You've got the costume design, location filming, which always makes things look a little, little bit more classy. Um, some great character actors in there. You've got the, the old Holmesian double axe coming in with Jago and Lightfoot. And um, I just think the whole thing, is a, as a package, as Simon put it, is just really beautifully put together. And that's, well, yeah, and, yeah. And it's the, a great the, story. The BBC was doing what it. I mean, the um, uh, yes, the period drama. Sorry, they just said mm. period. Uh, the period drama aspect of the BBC wardrobe department and and well, everything. The whole sort of production team was second to none, and they kind of it was kind of applied to Doctor Who. So you had a lot of obviously period pieces like Talons of Wang Chiang, but almost that same mentality was applied to all of the stories in that period. So you you got this very evocative that was, atmosphere. That was Robert Holmes. Yeah. Robert Holmes had a thing about... He always did this. You look at Carnival of Monsters and, you know, Reboss Operation is another wonderful example. Robert Holmes doesn't do these sort of sterile future environments where the story comes before the characters. He always puts the characters before the story, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about some of the stories are pure bungum. But the characters are still great. And that's what Robert Holmes does. He, he makes, uh, you know, all those stories across that entire period. With a couple of exceptions where the, you know, there's the android invasion, for instance, doesn't really have great characters apart from the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Because apart from the Doctor and Sarah Jane, there's not really anybody else in it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, by and large, the characters across those entire three years are written with a panache that carries the stories along, even when the stories perhaps don't really deserve it. Do, do we know uh, specifically whether... I mean, we know that Tom was kind of rewriting his lines a bit, but do we know that whether whether Sarah and, say, Harry and the other you know, companions of the time were, were helping to rewrite their lines too to make it more fluid and more like... Uh, well, I don't think Tom Baker's famous for rewriting his own lines until later on. Right, OK. I was just wondering because you know if if that's the case, then this is very strong writing all the way through, and it's got the character of the Doctor of the time, you know, the actor saying the lines. It's perfect. It, none of it feels forced, like you say. It's just very well. Well, it's the performance balanced. he puts on it. Mm. You can, you could probably see John Pertwee saying a lot of those lines, and it being a completely different thing. Mm. It's like with Davros. A lot of Davros's lines in Genesis of the Daleks, you could imagine being, you know, with a slight twist to bring them round to the other character. But a lot of those lines aren't written that differently from the kind of stuff that Bernard Horsfall, for example, was saying in uh, Planet of the Daleks or chap that played Galloway, for example, in Death of the Daleks. But in Genesis of the Daleks... You know, that character, Davros, given those lines played by that actor, filmed in that way, in that kind of a story, brings a whole new resonance to it. Mm. In a story that, again, probably doesn't quite deserve that, but gets it. Because everybody's playing 
you know, everybody's playing for this kind of Doctor Who at the top of their games. Mm, I was going to say, I can't imagine Pertwee doing Genesis the Daleks. Certainly not that speech when he's got the wires in his hands and he's got that choice of whether to get rid of the Daleks mm. forever. You're he not telling does me something almost exactly the same in Planet of the Daleks. Do you think? Yeah, he does. This, he does a pretty similar speech in Planet of the Daleks when he kills the Daleks. There, it's got it's got exactly the same emotive content. It's just that Tom Baker brings one thing to it, while John Pertwee brings to it something else. Mm. It's not in the writing; it's in the performance. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the 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 people have always said, "Oh, Robert Holmes rewrote a lot of Genesis of the Daleks, and it's not really Terry Nation at all." No, he did not. Robert Holmes was writing Revenge of the Cybermen and the Ark in Space. He didn't have time to rewrite Genesis of the Daleks. All that happened with Genesis of the Daleks was that Barry Letts asked uh, Terry Nation if he could do something a little bit different, and Terry Nation decided to do the creation of the Daleks. Mm. Uh, it's still all Terry Nation, that story. Yeah, you can tell it is because he put a giant clam in it. It's not a joke. <laughs> I wasn't looking for anybody to laugh, but it's true. That's a very Terry Nation thing to do, isn't it? When they go for their little journey, there's that little t- they always have to go on a journey somewhere in a in a rubbish place, there are lots like a of jungle or, or a cave or something. There's always some ridiculous <clears throat> radiation creature that, or whatever the slither, you know, blah, 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 huh? climbing the rocket, climbing the rocket, yeah, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, you know, it's still a oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Terry Nation. I think it's the relationship between Tom and Liz that sells it for me when I watch those back. You can obviously mm. tell they get on like a house on fire. I think they were both from Liverpool, so I think they obviously had a lot of connections that would mean that they'd hit it off. And I, it just shows on the screen. You know, no matter how good an actor you are, if you don't really get on with the person you're having to play opposite every week, then it's going to come through. But I think they do a, a really stellar job and I yeah. I just love watching that well, team. It's always a strange, ex- yeah, always con- a strange expression, isn't it? Get on like a house on fire. Where'd <laughs> that come from? Okay, but contrary to that, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson didn't get on quite. at all. No, and yet quite. those last three stories in season 14 are certainly Robots of Death and Talents of Wang Jiang, absolute pinnacles of the series. Mm. So that argument doesn't necessarily hold water. I suppose. There is something very interesting going on there, though, and this is perhaps something more like what Stephen Moffat's doing now. I mean, people complain now that Stephen Moffat's putting too much effort into the companions, that there's too much going on with the companions, and that it's hard to believe that there's so much going on with the companions. But if you look at the classic series, the only time probably when as much thought and as much depth and a sort of wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing is going on with that companion too because if you look at Leela's trajectory she comes from a highly advanced civilization that has devolved back into primitivism and now the doctor is trying to take her and reverse that change that's taken place in her ancestry in you know a few weeks or months or whatever of a single character but he's trying to take her from the primitivism back into a kind of a cultured sort of version of Leela and that's kind of a really interesting wibbly wobbly timey wimey story arc taking place right there never happened with any other character in the classic series not in quite that way 
probably Turlo's the only other time when something even remotely as interesting was attempted and most of that was after the fact because nobody knew what the hell they were doing with Turlo <laughs> and they just asked the same writer who'd introduced him to come up with an excuse for him being there in the story where he leaves whereas with Leela obviously it's all absolutely deliberate and that's in, the, in terms of character know, development I think Ace is probably the only other one I can really yeah, but I'm not talking about character development. No, I'm no, talking about character to... development and an interesting conceit mm. at the same time. Mm. And, you know, the next time we get this is Amy Bond. You know, so Leela, uh, they're very ahead of their time in a way. And that's Chris Boucher's influence. I think, I think Boucher and Holmes and Hinchcliffe hit it off in a big way. And... Although season 13 and season 12 are fantastic, don't get me wrong, it's just a real shame that Hinchcliffe got taken off the programme when he did. Mm. Can you imagine another series with those, with Chris Boucher probably having a fairly heavily, uh, a fairly heavy influence on what's going on? A bit mm. like Ben Aronovich to um, Andrew Cartmel during uh, John Nathan Turner's last couple of seasons. That would have been interesting. <laughs> Having said that, I really like the Graham Williams stuff. I think I'm probably in the um, the minority on that. But uh... Oh, no, I do, but that's something else. I mean, one more year of Hinchcliffe and Holmes before we get to Williams would have been... Nope. Have I lost everybody? No, no, no. no we're, I'm we're still listening. We thought you were going to finish your sentence, but you did. <laughs> oh, no, it was a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I mean, the thing, when you see interviews with Philip Hinchcliffe, he comes across as quite a pragmatic person and incredibly intelligent. And I think he was intelligent enough to do what was needed for the series without getting, without his own, um, not so much ego, but without his own whims getting in the way. You get some of the, the people who've been involved with the series deciding to steer it in a certain direction. And uh, Yeah, obviously there was a certain amount of that with, with the horror aspect, but I, I just get the impression from him, from when you see interviews and um, and what have you, um, that he he's just very straight down the line, incredibly um, fascinating to listen to. Um, he um, Robert Holmes was obviously by far the senior man in terms of age and experience. Yeah. And I think Philip Hinchcliffe was just happy to let him get on with it. And Hinchcliffe was happy to make the production decisions and let Robert Holmes get away he was with the facilitator. telling the kind of yeah. stories he wanted. Yeah, yeah It's exactly. a hell of a luxury to have someone like that at your beck and call, isn't it? I mean, but then that's a talent talked about J&T and, and Saywood, and mm. I don't think they really had that same sort of relationship. No. It's a talent in itself, though, to be able to step back and say, you do what you need to, and to know that it's right as well, though. You know, I maintain that sometimes um, you do get people who try to make their stamp on a program and it doesn't always work. And and they will have discussed it. It's not as if Robert Holmes was just given the opportunity to run riot. Mm. You know, these two guys discussed everything they were doing. And, you know, well, Philip Hinchcliffe writes anyway. He wrote... Um, what was it you wrote later on? I mean, he wrote a couple of the Target books, but I think he wrote an original as well. Or could I be... No, I think I'm perhaps mistaken him with... No, um, he wrote Graham one Williams. that they brought out as a Big Finish Lost story. Oh, did he? Oh, which the name yeah. eludes me at the moment. Mark, set in the um, Amazon. Mark, you oh, the, um, 
Sorry? Sorry, I was going to say Mark will probably say they're just about to start a new series of Philip, Philip Hinchcliffe big finishes now, aren't they? They are, yeah. Yeah. He's been asked to uh, steer a particular batch of Tom Baker audios, which wow. could be quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think without the uh, Robert Holmes mm. at the table as well, I'm not quite sure if that experiment is mm. not more than paying lip service to the past. We'll we'll see. In a we'll certain see way. I mean. Yeah. Well, the thing is, even even without Robert Holmes, of course, Hinchcliffe was right in the thick of that. Mm. And it's not like he didn't have a big influence on it. I, I Actually, Mark, I'm quite excited about that uh, anyway, because I'm always excited about getting people from the past back into Big Finish Doctor Who and seeing what they can do with it. I'm, I'm quite pleased with what Tom Baker's doing at the moment. And I'm just glad he's doing the Doctor again, albeit a kind of an older, even more madder version. Valley of Death, it was called. There you go. Valley yeah. of Death, yeah. That's another thing with the, oh, the titles was... as well. <laughs> they're always something of something, and it's like the evil of something or the terror of doom. Are they real B-movie titles? <laughs> There's no two ways about it. Yeah, totally different to all the other ones. Well, no, there were other periods of the show in which B-movie titles were. The, the, the titles in the Hinchcliffe and Holmes are not too far removed from the ones that you had during Let's and Dicks. Something of the something. Oh, you disappeared there. No. Okay, you just... Sorry, Return of the Hinchcliffe. Oh, you were being funny and saying Inferno because it's a one-word title oh, and ignoring it? things oh, like... Lee was, yeah. The Claws of Axos, Terror of the Autons, Planet of the Daleks, The Green Death, Frontier in Space, Planet of the Spiders, Monster of Peladon, The Curse of Peladon, The This of This, and so on and so forth. It's a very Let's and Dicks thing. Okay, you... Am I? Yeah, you win. <laughs> <laughs> What on earth is going on over there? Well, we just we've we've said what we need to say. We're just waiting for you to talk, if that's all right. Okay, where were we? We were probably talking about Big Finish, actually. Oh, we were. We were talking about Hinchcliffe coming back to the to the fold and writing new stuff. Of course, the funny thing about the first year of the um, Tom Baker audios for Big Finish was that they finished with the Grals. Yeah, they brought them back again, didn't they? Yeah. Did they? Yeah. Oh, you know I heard that. Okay. How did that pan out? Good. Well, not very well for them, as <laughs> you'd expect. <laughs> did they do the cowboy story? They were going to do a cowboy crawl story, weren't they? Was it Gunfight uh, at the no. OK Crawl? No, they actually, I think they, without spoilers, um, they actually introduced the master into a, a story with them as well. Yeah. Played by Jeffrey Beavers. Yeah, you have spoiled it, actually, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, this podcast has gone west very quickly and very That's all right. We can we can edit all the uh, huge gaps and silences out, but you know, people forgetting that we do do this by Skype, by the way. So we're not looking at each other. It's a very tricky thing. I just got to say hello to Mark Clapham as well, who's listening to our podcast at the moment. Who's just joined in? Um not just joined in, he's just getting through them very quickly and enjoying them a lot. So thanks for listening, Mark. Of course, Mark's oh. Mark's done novels in the past, hasn't he? He's done some did you do some new adventures, or was it? Oh, was the, it was the BBC books, wasn't it? He did. Yeah, he did a couple of BBC books as well. So, yeah, and a Warhammer is what he's working on at the moment. But uh, yeah, 
It's always nice to have new listeners and people saying they appreciate what we do, so thank you very much. Have we got any more emails, by the way? You said you had uh, about three pages worth, JR. Have we got through those already? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) There are three more emails. (laughs) Are you telling me to go to emails? Well, if we're getting huge gawping chasms of silence between us, it might be time to move on to an email, unless you've got something else to say. I have to say my brain has died in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> so let's just... The brain of death. <clears throat> Hello, Blue Boxers. Just listened to the season one podcast and another good one it was too. But just thinking about subjects for the next podcast, big historical moments the show got wrong. How about the cliffhanger in Dragonfire? Okay, I'm kidding, but I'm looking forward to it. Pivotal moments of what-ifs could be very interesting. That was obviously just written before our what-ifs podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, this is Weird Bean, actually. He says, by the way, it's great to hear you all back together again. Amazingly. <laughs> Although I must admit, the guest episodes were very good. Any chance of getting Richard back on for another attempt at Eric Sherwood? <laughs> Keep up the good work, guys. Round that's two. From a fella, <laughs> yeah, that's from a fella called Weird Bean. Um, oh, this is interesting. The Reverend Captain Hollow Porro. Remember him? Mm-hmm. Yes. How could we forget? He's been in touch. He says, well, hello, boys. Not been in touch for a while. I felt my emails added a quirky, jokey bent to the shows, but you've all done a sterling job of being comedians of late. The old What If episode just being a greatest hits of JR's best wrong bits, etc. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the greatest hits of JR's best wrong bits. That could be an album title or a book or something, couldn't it? It could. Anyway, says the Reverend Captain Hollow Porro, I was cruising the internet and I found this. Uh, now, I'll give you the email address and you can perhaps look it up yourself because it's worth going to take a look at. It's http uh, forward slash forward slash doctorwhotoys.net forward slash hideplayset.htm. And if you look it up, do you guys know the recent play sets that they put out in the three and three quarter inch range for the ice warrior and the dalek right yeah yes right apparently and this is dated like due for release maybe june and obviously it hasn't happened in june but i'm assuming this is probably coming up because i'm pretty sure this isn't a fake website it looks pretty real mm-hmm. a hide play set it's got um, the inside of the building with like a two-facing wall, one of which is just a regular wall and the other one is like the archway that he goes through. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a three and three-quarter inch figure of the monster from Hyde. Sweet. And it just looks absolutely mental. <laughs> but it brilliant. Mental in a good way or mental in a bad way? Oh, no, mental in a brilliant way. <laughs> is, is, but I mean, the, is the, the, um, toy, the creature in that is just so weird. You wouldn't expect there to be a toy of it. Is it just a single... Is the um, the female or the mate there? No, just one. Oh, so it, if you get two sets, you get two toys. Well, you, you'd want, I'd want another one that's somewhere else in the house looking at its watch. But <laughs> well, by two sets. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, anyway, the Reverend Captain continues, would you put this on the Monoid Quark side or the Dalek Cyberman side? Do you remember that? What's that? Say it again. 
Uh, oh, Lee, is that you? No, it's Simon. Oh, Simon. Sorry. Well, when we had the conversation about the uh, Silurians from 1970. Yeah. And I said, you look at the great Doctor Who monsters and you've got Daleks uh, and Cybermen. Yeah. And then you look at the other Doctor Who monsters and you've got Monoids and Quarks. And he says, would you put the Hyde monster on the Monoid and Quark side or on the Dalek and Cyberman side? <sighs> I know, uh, well, I think until we had the extreme close-up of it, I probably would have put it in the more favourable ca- category. But, yeah, possibly oh, that just pushed it into the Quark category. I oh, like the Quarks. With the Monoids. I really like the Quarks. I think they're beautiful. Honestly, I love, love their the heads. I love the texture on there. Brilliant. Yeah, but you like, right, you like, the, okay. you like the Crotons as well. So there's something about you and Angles. <laughs> you like metal robots with angles, yeah? Yeah, I thought so. Um, like, uh, there's got to be a middle mid section. Yeah, I don't you can't think just Simon really appreciates there's a difference between <laughs> pretty to look at and a good and interesting <laughs> and logical monster design. The quarks are rubbish. They might be pretty, <laughs> but they're rubbish. Yeah, but you like the chumblies, don't you, Jr? No, I hey? oh, is it is it you that likes the chumbly? I oh, know that's Simon as well. I'm sorry, it's Simon. Simon likes all the crap things in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> the Chumblies are just a bowl upside down. I, I do really do want to start a new line in cosplay of dressing up as the crap monsters because I just think they're far more fascinating than the proper ones. I, th- I just oh, God, have a remote control Chumbly would be brilliant. <laughs> and I want to walk around a convention as a croton. Well, best of luck to you and best of luck to you with affording to get that costume. I'm together. saving up cereal packets as we speak. <clears throat> Anyway, the Reverend Captain continues, where is the play value in a hide set? Great episode, yes, but it doesn't mean it's a wise toy choice. So then I ask you all, what episode of Who, old or new, would you like to have as a play set? And what would be the worst episode to have as a play set? Talons of Wing Chiang would be a good play set. There's loads in yeah. there, loads. No, there's already toys of Talons No, no, Wing but Chiang. an actual play set with, with the rat that you can actually stick on your hand like a little glove puppet. Perfect. No, but I don't think you're getting this because you obviously haven't seen these playsets. These playsets are really cheap. They're only a tenner. What you do, you have a figure and then you have like a bit of set, which is basically two short segments of wall and a short segment of floor. So uh, when he says playset, uh, it's a figure and just a tiny little bit of set. That oh, right. okay, on. midnight. That would make a good playset. What about Clara's, um, and sorry, Oswin? No, 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 let's go back to Midnight. Go on, Midnight. What would be your, what would be your little three and three quarter inch monster for Midnight? Well, you wouldn't have one, would you? you just have, what's her face, Sky. So, no, but, the, so you're saying that's a good place or a bad place? No, that'd be a terrible place. You, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want would that be, made. It would be an awful place there. <laughs> I'd be happy with Catherine Tate in a dressing gown. She is right at the it end in a dressing gown. Down. Simon, I don't think you're really getting this. It's a playset for kids. Yeah. You've got to have a monster and a little bit of set that you can play with. Well, you know what they say about parts of women's anatomy and train sets. Made for kids, but the men end up playing with them. Do you know, I never heard that one before. Oh, dear. God. Is there a few well, I'm going to expand on mine, which I think I might have mentioned already, which is the ghost-like playset with um, Reverend Matthew's chimp variant. <laughs> and uh, he can have his own little... Um, glass case for him to go in or you could always have the inspector with like little drawers that come out and pop him into his drawer that'd be awesome oswin's kitchen with a little souffle little plastic souffle uh, 
Sorry. I think I'd prefer a little segment of the Ark in Space with a Wirren inside it. Nice. Anyway, just to bring things back to a more serious bend, uh, the Reverend Captain, after having asked us about what kind of playsets would we like to see, gives us a few suggestions. He says, would we like to toss Tom Baker off? No, he says, would we like to toss Tom Baker off a mini Pharos project? How about oh. Earthshock with an exclusive exploding Adric action figure? <laughs> <laughs> or a full Series 5 set featuring exclusive Amy Pond with a fully working crack? Uh, well, Ooh, like the Doctor fuck. putting things what you, wrong... What? <laughs> what? Wait, I thought I was plumbing the depths and then that email came along. Yes, but yes. we want we want some uh, we need some balance. Somebody needs to balance the force and send something else. Then that isn't anything to do with Amy Pond and the word crack. If that's okay. Could we have a, like a traction-driven um, murker? And then you could toss Peter Davison off, couldn't you? Off the side next to the murker. Oh dear. I'm Moving sorry. on. <laughs> yes, very swiftly. Yeah. I knew what you. Well, meant. like. Well, like the Doctor putting wrongs right, I've surely returned the show to a more highbrow status. <laughs> it's time I sushed myself up and got on with playing Call with back. my time in the Rani Lukersha playset. A nice. bit like Mousetrap, but instead of capturing an annoying high-pitched piece of vermin, you have to trap Mel in a hamster ball. <laughs> Word up. From Not the that Reverend far. Captain Not Hello that far removed, but anyway. <clears throat> very good, sir. Mm. Very good. Well done. Good email. Yes, absolutely. And my God, that was a short one too. The next one's a long one. God knows how we're going to get through this, but let's give it a go. This is from... Actually, this is from... Oh my God, I've clicked the wrong button and lost it. Just while you're looking, uh, Lee's going to have to make a swift exit because he's got to go and do a radio show. Oh, thank Christ for that. (laughs) Bye, Lee. (laughs) Right, cheerio, guys. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Uh, well, that's nicely timed because this uh, email starts off, Gentlemen and Lee. Ooh. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's <Dan>. cold. <laughs> I thought you were gone. <laughs> this is from Doc Hume, and it's just his response to a couple of, well, what were recent episodes at the time he wrote it. They're not that long ago. So I'll just whip through them. Um, on our What If episode... He says, the rubbish ending of the key to time season wasn't the anticlimactic dispersal of the key. The real rubbish ending was all six episodes of the utterly Bobbins Armageddon factor. On the rare occasions that I haven't fallen asleep in the middle of that story, I've never worked out what happened to all the people of Zeos. Don't get me started on the wimp of a princess and her wimp of a lover. In fact, the only good thing about the whole story was the end, with Romana rolling her eyes in exasperation and casually swiping the doctor on the back of the head when he does his megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal overacting. I'm trying to read this in Ari. <laughs> <clears throat> he says, you're right that there is a problem with Mel's dragonfire exit, but the problem is that it didn't happen five stories earlier. If it, it happened before, it sounds like a euphemism. If they could have done a timey wimey thing where she actually left before she appeared, it would have been amazing. That would have been brilliant. He says, A big slap on the wrist for JR using the word feisty in discussing Perry. Is he applying for a job in the BBC press office? I and suppose it's preferable to busty. <laughs> and he says, I was very surprised when JR excused his yawning by saying, I've obviously had too long a day at work. That has to be a first for a postman. <laughs> Ooh. 
<laughs> well, thank you for that, Doctor Get Who. back in the knife drawer. <laughs> right, but then he goes on and he gives us a few notes on the Daleks episode we did as well. <clears throat> he says, like Simon, I too thought for years that I'd watched Day of the Daleks on first broadcast until I checked the dates and saw that I couldn't have. He thinks it must have been repeated in the school holidays a few years later. Of course, the repeat was in the school holiday of the following year, so that must have been when. Uh, when it comes to the Dalek paradigm, JR was quite right. Has those four words ever been spoken before, he asks? <laughs> about in your bigger head, JR. And taller. <laughs> mm. <laughs> he says JR was quite right about bigger and taller not being the same as scarier. I can't work out whether the production team actually believed that or whether they were just primed to say it on Confidential as a justification for the redesign. If it was the former, that doesn't bode well for the return of the Zygons. Can we expect their creepy whispering voices to have been replaced by loud screeching on the grounds that louder is scarier too? <laughs> Screechy. Oh, dear. Mm. He goes on to say... Oh dear. Sorry. Uh, he goes on to say, what's boring in the modern Dalek stories and a lot of the 80s ones is that every story has to revolve around an obsession with genetic engineering. In Revelation of the Dar Daleks, genetic fiddling. In Dalek, genetic fiddling. In Bad Wolf, Parting of the Ways, genetic fiddling. In Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks, genetic fiddling. And in Vind Victory of the Daleks, genetic fiddling. It's all far too navel-gazing. Why can't we have some simple galactic conquest stories? Mm, mm. Yeah, so what, yeah says, it is. It's all inward, isn't it? It's, mm. it's all about looking at the Dalek I, condition. It's like, well, we know what the Dalek condition is. They're evil. Let's just let them get on with it. I think actually Daleks in Manhattan, and I said this during the episode, is the only one of those that does it with any great success, which is why I think it's such a terrible shame that that story has such a bad reputation. It's the only one of those stories that does something interesting with the Daleks, for my money. Anyway, uh, Doc Hume carries on to say the best Dalek story was undoubtedly Genesis, not least because it's the only story where Davros has been decently characterised. JR was reduced to arguing at one point that in the later Davros stories at least he stopped ranting occasionally for a quiet chat. In Genesis he might rant madly once or twice but that's about it. In all the future Davros stories that nothing, there's nothing that comes close to the tiny pressure of my thumb exchange or Davros's speech in the debate. The law of diminishing returns was explored in minute detail through the 80s to the point where I was actually disappointed at the reveal that it was Davros hiding inside the Roland deodorant prop or the Golden Emperor as some of us older types fondly remember mm. it. I watched Destiny the other day, I loved it. Mm. Yeah, I think his point is pretty much what I was saying in <clears throat> the podcast about the Terry Malloy stories as well. You know, he goes very quickly from one gear to another, but it's not the gradual movement from, you know, one emotional extreme to another emotional extreme. You watch that Pressure of My Thumb speech with uh, Michael Wisher in Genesis, and it takes him a good minute to work his way gradually up through those gears so that you can't see him changing from one thing to the other. It starts off with a really quiet voice as he's making a conjecture and it ends up with him screaming, yes, I would do this. And Terry Malloy would have gone, yes, Doctor. Yes, Doctor. You know, he would have turned it on a mm. nine pin and it just doesn't work. Not for me. And apparently not for Doc Hume either. 
I liked, I liked Terry Malloy, so, yeah. So, bugger us. What about most, uh, the most recent Davros, then? How, what does everyone feel about that? Julian oh, no. Bleach. Yeah, Julian Bleach. He, he back to, yeah, back to, um, back to Michael Wisher. Mm, mm. Excellent. Best one since Michael Wisher. No question in my mind. Slightly unhinged as well, which I love. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, Davros should always be unhinged. It's just that there should be some subtlety in the performance of it. Anyway, uh, finally, Doc Hume says, Funny thing I've just remembered about 2005. I put the whole of uh, Series 1 onto a DVD and sent it to an old schoolmate about a week after the series ended. A guy who was as hard as nails at school, obsessed with nothing but football, and ended up as a squaddy. I assumed he'd dismiss it as kids TV, posted it on a Friday, and got a phone call from him in the early hours of Sunday morning. He'd put it in on his TV and watched it all the way through, spellbound. And his response was, you bastard. <laughs> what have I done now? I said. Sending me that DVD. I've only just stopped crying. Doctor Who, says Doc Whom, touches hearts that other shows cannot reach. <laughs> Nice way to end. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think we should call it a night. We've been going for long enough. Uh, unless anybody has anything else they'd like to bring up? Nope, don't think so. That'll be a no. In that case. Oh, next week we'll do the Graham Williams years. Oh, okay. That sounds cool. So, that's uh, unless something else comes up, you know, after uh, the summer we've been having. Who knows what we might be covering oh, next oh, week. Dear. Currently, our plan is Graham Williams. <laughs> there isn't anything bubbling so, under, is there, JR? Nothing bubbling under <clears> we <throat> should know about? I think it's going to be a very low-key year for Doctor Who this year. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Mark. <laughs> oh, dear. Let's do it again. <laughs> I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And sadly, we will speak again soon. Mm -hmm.